Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder and our chat room monitor Andrea await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a terrific chat room with some wonderful folks that join us, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we do have a great chat room, a great group of people, excellent conversation. Um, yeah, you should definitely come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. And uh, tell us about your chat room, because your chat room remains up, and a lot of people miss our live broadcast, so they catch us uh, on one of the other networks, and um, the chat room is there. So if you show a video or you you discuss some content, they can still join the chat room. Is that correct? That's correct. And, you know, if there are any orals that are hard to catch on the air, we will often post them up um in the chat room as well. So if you want to double check some details or something, if there was something you didn't quite catch, take a look in the chat room and you'll often find the answers right there. All right. In today's spotlight, I want to draw your attention once again to the ever-increasing role information is playing in all of our lives. By now, you are all aware of the collection of data that resides somewhere on virtually every one of us. Much of this data is not about our medical health or our insurance policies or our driving record or any other matter of this nature, for much of the data is about our profiles, our likes and dislikes, our attitudes, our ambitions, our favorite movies, preferred politicians, opinions regarding everything from the meaning of life to our involvement in it. What's on our grocery list? What television shows we watch? Where we shop? the former means that we pay our bills with, where we bank, who we associate with, and who our family members are, where we live, who we give money to, where we volunteer, what kind of car we drive, where we were married, and on and on. Today, in some way or another, you and I have been branded by someone as a target for something. Have no doubt about that. Today we are facing a whole new world, one of the information age in full bloom, and already there has been some nasty fallout. Take, for instance, the situation with Target sending a pregnant teenage girl baby coupons before her father even knew she was pregnant, or the practice by some companies to gather information from domestic violence shelters and or list of dementia patients in order to target market fragile families. I spent years researching and assembling the hard data on the efforts that are in practice today to shape your needs and thinking. I share this information with you in my newest book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will. Over 400 pages, and I could just as well have written another 400, and maybe 400 more after that. So take my word, you are already on some list and targeted for something. Please don't fail to become aware of how this impacts every one of us, for it is only by becoming aware that we stand a chance to be anything other than the compliant consumption animal 
trained by the elite. Every piece of information that you surrender is but a sliver in a much larger board. Slivers amount to nothing until they're added together, one in another, and finally you hit over the head with a two-by-four. It is the pattern that matters, for every sliver does indeed add to one another until there is no denying the weight of the wooden club held over our heads. I hope this matters to you, for if it doesn't, someone else will enjoy the labors of your life, and you are likely to depart this world far less happy and fulfilled than you deserve. For as Stephen Jay Gould, paleontologist and educator at Harvard University, said, quote, When people learn no tools of judgment and merely follow their hopes, the seeds of political manipulation are sown. In my view, refusing to become informed, truly informed, is inviting the wolf in. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? It definitely is. Uh, you know, I find the whole thing really kind of scary, but the scariest part are those people who say it doesn't matter. Who cares if someone is aware that I prefer whole wheat bread or, you know, this shade of lipstick or whatever. Um, and on the surface, it can seem that innocuous. But when you realize the amount of information they have and how they use that to manipulate you in your book, Gotcha, you give several of, you know, these kinds of research that that has been done, you know, things like um, if you're being served in a restaurant and your server is wearing red, they get tipped more. <laughs> it's just across the board. You know, if you have a bottle of hand sanitizer on the table, then and you do a survey, people will vote more conservatively. If there is a slight smell of bleach in the air, people will clean up after themselves. I'm going to use that one. I like that one. <laughs> but when you're aware of all of the things they do, all the tricks that they use, and they combine it all together until they're just puppeting you, and you have forgotten who you are because you're too busy being pushed around by them. Whatever them can be. So the it money. is a really big issue, and we should all be really concerned about it, you know. Primes are very important, but but you're just citing one element of it. I mean, you know, this past week we learned that the little tool we all put on our smartphones, the flashlight, mm -hmm. is designed to collect our information and forward it on. Our credit card info, our GPS location, our personal data, etc., is forwarded to sites located in China, India, and Russia. The top 10 flashlight utilities all operate this way. You know, our listening audience, look at your own flashlight. If it takes up a meg or more, it's forwarding the data on. Um, you know, and, and you've got to wonder, okay, well, where am I safe? What is privacy anymore? Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dr. Madeleine Lawrence and we discussed her appraisal of an approaching paradigm change regarding death and dying or the survival of consciousness, consciousness beyond the grave as explained in her book, The Death View Revolution. Erica wrote, I just loved your interview with Dr. Lawrence. I think she offered the most down-to-earth explanations of the dying process and the evidence for an afterlife that I have ever heard. Joanne wrote, 
Hey, Dr. Taylor, keep plugging. We need those billionaires to fund some of the research you have been talking about on your shows. I would like to see them engage you to supervise that research because you dare to ask the unpopular hard questions and you seem ever aware of the flaws and some of the conclusions drawn by many. We might actually get impartial and biased results that way. Well, I'm honored by your praise, Joanne, but there are very many good candidates for that position. I would just like to see more money available for research aimed at studying the nature of non-local consciousness. Research that once and for all either instantiates or nullifies that hypothesis. Where we already have some pretty good work, if funding were available, I'm certain that design protocols could be developed that would produce replicable results regarding the mechanistic paradigm of the human condition that would take into account all of those so-called anomalies that are otherwise largely ignored. That said, today's guest has already made giant steps in this direction. Janice wrote, I find discussions of NDE so hopeful. Thank you for your in-depth coverage of this subject on your shows. I have now heard several of your shows on the subject, and as a result, I do think the evidence suggests we survive in some way the death of the body. You know, Janice, I have over two dozen interviews from who's who folks up on the Internet that deal with exactly this issue. Take a look at the link on my page, Life Beyond Death, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, for those interviews. Just go to eldentaylor.com and scan down the page for that link. All right, last week the spotlight was all about the notion of oneness and separation, insofar as the idea that there is no evil in the world except as perceived by a perceiver. Don wrote in response to the spotlight, quote, The same old dogma of freedom isn't free doesn't seem very enlightened. I would like to reply to this message that the first act of warfare is defense. Keep thinking like the ego thinks, you'll get Keep getting more ego wars. When will the eagle's defense ever end and Christ's love and forgiveness be allowed to enter in? Well, I think the answer to that, Don, is when it all ends. Because so long as this world exists, there will be duality. Black and white, up and down, good and bad, and so forth. The IMM this week in their Sunday service stated, and I'm quoting Reverend Dr. Paul Masters, quote, a person might idealize the permanent, lasting peace as possible. But with mystical awareness comes the knowing that on this earth plane it will never be so. This is a plane of existence whose very existence is based on dualism or opposites. Hot and cold, pleasure or pain, love or loneliness, and should it not then follow war and peace. I would add, Don, that not only does this plane exist in duality, duality <laughs> but so do we and part of the purpose is for us to reconcile opposites the so-called middle path or middle pillar this reconciliation can only be accomplished as a result of discernment and action action we take to do the right thing when choice is afforded us do we defend the rights of the innocent or turn our back with some convoluted notion of justice while arrogating to ourselves enlightened consciousness? I could share many stories with you, Don, from when I worked with law enforcement. But let me share just one quick abbreviated experience. A young woman came to me one day desperate for help. Her two children had been abducted 
and for three months local law enforcement had failed to turn up anything. She was afraid that they were out of country and she would never see them again. I'll save you the details. But when I returned the children to her, the joy and love I witnessed still can bring tears to my eyes. I'll try and say this nicely. The perpetrator, the criminal, that stole her children did not plan to love and cherish them. Not at all. So, Don, there is evil in the world, and if everyone turned their back on it, well, that would not end the suffering for the innocent, now would it? As I said last week, I do pray for the time that the world no longer needs law enforcement or armed forces to protect our freedoms. But until that time arrives, I make no apologies for stating flatly, it is incumbent upon each and every one of us to support the freedom of all. For without freedom, worship as we choose may well cease to exist. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly appreciate your feedback and your support. Now to this week's show. The End of Materialism with Professor Charles Tart. Let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. There aren't too many people that I hold in higher honor or with greater respect than Professor Charles Tart. Professor Tart is internationally known for his psychological work on the nature of consciousness, particularly altered states of consciousness, as one of the founders of the field of transpersonal psychology and for his research in parapsychology. And for those of you that don't know, transpersonal psychology, for all intent and purposes, legitimized within the field of psychology the honest investigation of spirituality, of, of our spiritual experiences. Professor Tart's two classic books, Altered States of Consciousness and Transpersonal Psychologies, were widely used as texts that were instrumental in allowing these areas to become part of modern psychology. He is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the Davis campus of the University of California. He consulted on the original remote viewing research at Stanford Research Institute, where some of his work was important in influencing government policymakers against the deployment of the multi-billion dollar MX missile system. He is the author or co-author of 14 books and more than 250 articles published in professional journals and books including leading articles in such prestigious scientific journals as Science and Nature. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Charles Tart. It's a pleasure to be here, Elton. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure and our honor, sir. Um, I truly meant what I said. There are very few luminaries out there I hold with as high regard as I hold your work. Over 50 well, years of research. That's pretty incredible record. Yeah, well, don't keep that up, though. I'll start to blush. And even though it's just <laughs> radio, it'll make me feel funny. <laughs> okay. Before we get into your work, let's talk about who you are. We like to get three things from each of our guests. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, Professor Tarr, please tell us about your life as a young person. What did you want to be when you grew up? What was your childhood like? 
And how did it forge who you are today? Oh, all in one minute or so, right? <laughs> no, you take your time. <laughs> I, well, I'll tell you an interesting story about my childhood. This is my earliest memory as a child. It was during the Second World War. And I was sitting at the top of the stairs leading up to our apartment playing with a, a toy machine gun, okay? That was all politically correct then. We right. knew who the bad guys were. Right. And my grandfather came in from the street and called up the stairs to me. President Roosevelt had died. Well, I had heard my parents and other adults talking about that devil Roosevelt who was ruining the country and whatnot. So I ran into our apartment where my mother and father were in the living room, and I said, Roosevelt's dead. Hooray, hooray, Roosevelt's dead. <laughs> and they spanked me. <laughs> I think I made a big jump then that the world was not as complicated as my child mind had it. It was going to take a lot more figuring out. <laughs> That's interesting. So what were your plans as a child? I mean, when, when you thought about growing up, were you thinking about, I'm going to join the Army, uh, I'm going to be an officer? I mean, where where did this point come that you decided you wanted to study consciousness? Yeah, well, I'm glad I didn't have plans to become an officer because I had to take... Uh, Reserve Officers Training Corps in college for the first two years, and I signed up to try the Advanced Corps, and they told me I couldn't qualify. Why? My eyes weren't good enough. But my eyes weren't good enough all the time. Why did you make me take the basic stuff? Oh, <laughs> uh, that didn't give me a very good feeling for it. You know, what I really wanted to be was a scientist. I just got really intrigued. You know, I was one of these annoying kids who always wanted to know how did things work? Why does it do this? Why doesn't it do that? So I just fell in love with science. That was really neat. And All right. Part of that was trying to understand my own mind. You know, I'd say my uh, my lifelong research project, still ongoing, is to try to figure out why in the world my mind is like it is. And I still haven't got all the answers. You know, I, it, it gets more complicated and interesting, but I don't have any final answers on it. <laughs> I think you're pretty confident, however, that it's not a local event. Yeah, I, do, I don't think it's just a local event, you know. As I get older, I think about dying, and I think, you know, I'm finally going to find out whether we survive death, and uh, I think we do, but, you know, if I'm wrong, I won't be embarrassed. I won't be there to be embarrassed. That's true. So it's much more interesting to think about survival of some sort. Were you raised religious? I mean, was your family religious? Did you have a faith that you followed young? Or? Oh, my mother and father were not formally religious in any way, but my mother was a person who knew all the right rules, okay? So she was strong on that. But my grandmother was very religious, and she took me to Sunday school and church, you know? And uh, grandmothers, you know, the source of all love, except my wife tells me one of her grandmothers used to cheat at cards to beat the kids, so <laughs> I guess this isn't universal. But, you know, if it was good enough for my grandmother, it was good enough for me. And then I got to be a teenager, and I started noticing that adults are hypocrites in an awful lot of ways, you know, they weren't really living the way they kept saying they should in church. And I knew a lot of science by then, and said, you know, there's a lot of contradictions between the way religion says the world is and the way science does. So I went through a lot of conflict about that. And, of course, lots of people do. 
But I was very lucky because I was an avid reader by then, especially reading science books. And I discovered that people have had this same problem for more than a century, you know. Sure, there's some things wrong with religion, but is it all wrong? Do we toss it all out? Or could we take the best method of science for refining truth and apply it to these kind of areas of religion and get a clearer picture of what's real? Do we have a soul or not? Is there survival? Can our minds do uh, things like telepathy? And that really inspired me, and that has been, you might say, the theme of my scientific career ever since then, to try to build bridges between the best of science and the best of spirituality. And I say the best because, of course, you know, there's people you would call scientists or religious people who are very closed-minded and prejudiced about anything. But, you know, there's a lot of good people on both sides of that debate, too. Sure. But... Speaking of that, you know, generally speaking, the academic world per se tends to frown rather heavily on ventures into the supernatural ESP and the like. I mean, I've spoken to many brilliant scientists on this show who've pushed the borders of accepted materialistic reductionist models only to be penalized for doing that, yep. you know. Uh, some I'm of them have been denied say, tenor, uh, and yet you became a... Emeritus professor, you know, distinguished recognition. What was your magic? How did you manage to accomplish that feat? And what would you tell a young scientist who may be thinking about following in your footsteps? Well, I have a standard career advice letter that says, first, if you're independently wealthy, that makes it much easier. <laughs> but if you've got to earn a living, there are some practical considerations here. Uh, yeah, I know about the prejudice and the irrational attacks and so forth. I've wasted a lot of my life having to fight those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, I don't even want to talk publicly about the story of how I finally got tenure. You know, it does not reflect well on the university. But let's say it was the year of the People's Park riots in Berkeley, and uh, there was a lot of worry about student power. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I, I, I'm tempted to want to pursue that, but I will respect your wishes and let it go. I right. have to admit that I rarely use the questions that our guests send us because they're typically softball, self-serving, and, you know, uh, we'll get a rehearsed answer, you know, one that spoils, I think, the value of a spontaneous conversation, the interview. But that said, when I looked over your questions, the very first one seems to be rather bold and provocative. So here it is, Professor, your question. I did not think this one up. Okay. Quote, science requires us to try to be objective. Doesn't your personal involvement in many spiritual disciplines keep you from being objective? To put it provocatively, are you just one more religious nut pretending to be a scientist? Now, I'll tell you, I would never have asked you that question, mm -hmm. but you wrote it down, so you got it. Yeah, I, I did decide I, I wanted to have a fun conversation and have you push me. So <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people who think I am a religious nut in disguise, yeah. Because, uh, you know, and even though, you know, I, don't, I make no claim to have an exclusive line to God and the, the ultimate realities and all that, I just say we should look at them, and I take them seriously myself. And, you know, I admit there's a lot of nonsense in the area of religion. But, of course, there's a lot of nonsense in all areas of life. But we can get better. 
And the reality is that people have spiritual experiences that transform their lives in ways that are not only good for them, but are good for the rest of us. I'm going to ask you to hold that thought right there, because we have a hard break coming up, and I don't want us kicked out by the computer. When we come back, we'll pick it up with, we have these experiences, what do we do with them? We're speaking with Professor Charles Tart about his life, work, and most recent book, The End of Materialism. To learn more about Professor Tart, visit his blog at blog.paradigm-sys.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Charles Tart about his life work and most recent book, The End of Materialism. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. 
Music is more important to us than many recognize. Music can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In the most recent study, um, we see that music is potentially a going to be used, I should say, as an intervention to help people with epilepsy. So now, we asked Professor Tart for his three favorites. And he came back and told us he doesn't have any. But when we pushed for something, he did finally provide us with three. Okay, we just played some of A Relaxing Sitar, performed by Ravi Shankar. Why is this sort of music important to you, Professor? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, you know, before you brought me on to the show, you were talking about how we're pushed around by people who manipulate us, how we're not using our minds to really be very free. And that's been one of the themes of my research, you know. Uh, one of my favorite uh, spiritual teachers was this man, G.I. Gurdjieff, who used to say, you don't need to study psychology if you want to understand people. Mechanics will do it because we're machines. Push this button and we do this. Push sounds that like, button and we do that. Sounds like Descartes. Yeah. And uh, he was one of the many people who kind of taught mindfulness techniques to make you more aware of what you're actually sensing at any moment as well as your internal processes. And one of the things I discovered from doing that was how powerful music is. Uh, it can have more effects than most of the stuff we think of as drugs having effects. Mm. And yet we bathe ourselves in music that we listen to semi-consciously so much of the time. So I generally don't listen to music much anymore unless I actually want to pay real attention to it because it's a powerful way of affecting your mind. Boy, isn't that ever the truth. But that's really interesting then. that yeah, They should outlaw the stuff. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, before the break, uh, you were explaining we all have a spiritual experience. Pick that up, please. Yeah, as far as I can tell, every, everybody has the potential to have what I call spiritual experiences. And by that I mean ordinarily we're caught in our ordinary everyday selves and our worries and what we've got to do next and whatnot. But we can have moments where, I, I'm trying to put this generally, we expand into a larger aliveness and a caring for other people, for life, for the planet, for things like that. And if you have those experiences, it makes you a better person, and in a practical sense. So, for instance, you know, our religions say you should be good to other people or you're going to go to hell. Well, that kind of threat works to some extent. But if you've had the kind of mystical experience where you really feel a deep connection to all the life in the universe, to other people, well, naturally you're nice to other people, right? They're you. You're them. It's not a moral imperative. It's the only sensible thing to do. Right. If we knew how to help many people have that kind of experience instead of trying to manipulate them, I think we'd have a much better world. Amen to that. Amen to that. People who have near-death experiences, for instance, are a marvelous example of that. You know, they they know we're connected. 
although that's not an easy way to get that kind of thing because they may those people may have 10, 20 years of struggle to try to figure out how do I put those insights into action in ordinary life. Let me ask you this, uh, Professor Tart. Um, you, you heard uh, the remarks that I made to a young woman who challenged a spotlight uh, from a week ago when we talked about the notion of, um, you know, we are all one, but at the same time, we need discernment because not everyone mm-hmm. is in in that place where they want to afford you with love. Uh, indeed, some of them have, uh, you know, rather uh, malevolent uh, yep. notions in mind, and 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 I feel that you know we we need to discern that, and we need we need to also take action. I mean, we need to defend freedom. Uh, we need to care about that 14-year-old girl in Pakistan whose husband discarded her to the barn after cutting her nose and ears off because she failed to please him in the bedroom. We we need to care about those rights. And and, and but but tell me, sir, in all your your work, your and and your your balancing spiritually, um, it, 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 how do you feel about that? I mean, is evil only in the eye of the perceiver? Well, you know, if you ask me that, like, I have some absolute understanding of the universe, Elton, I'll have to say, I don't know. But I know practically there are some people who are real bastards and we need to do something about what they're doing. That's just how it is. And I don't have any universal example for that, but I did have one turning point in my life which helped me on that. Okay. Years ago, I came across uh, a friend who was an expert in the Japanese martial art of Aikido. Right. I don't know how many people have heard of it, but it's a martial art that says love is the basic principle of the universe, love and harmony. It also recognizes that some people are kind of out of harmony a lot of the time, and they're going to hurt you. Right. So the question becomes, how can you effectively defend yourself from their actions without becoming nasty yourself? without just, you know, adding to the anger and hatred of the universe. And so this one Japanese man who had a mystical experience around it developed it into an art that's a pretty effective form of self-defense, but it's centered around being aware and not getting angry and full of hate in yourself and yet being able to defend yourself against other people's actions. It's hard to describe verbally because, you know, it's, it's the actual physical techniques that really matter, except it generalizes into life. Uh, Someone once said they'd heard me lecture a number of times, and when I lecture about things like parapsychology, I often get some very hostile people in the audience who ask nasty questions. And he said he really admired my technique for dealing with nasty questioners. And I was very puzzled. My technique? What technique? (laughs) But I realized the Aikido I'd learned as a physical self-defense kind of form had turned into a psychological self-defense form for me, of where course. instead of getting angry, I saw this is another person who's upset about something. Can I draw them out to understand better what it's about and help them redirect their energy in a more constructive direction instead of, hey, I'm a professor and you're a jerk. How dare you question <laughs> me? Right. That's not a way to increase the harmony in the world. No, you're black belt in Aikido, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. We may as well get that out there. So, 
Uh, I'm going to infer from what you said that, uh, and you correct me, but it, it is incumbent upon us to do what we can do uh, to preserve freedom uh, while at the same time um, minimizing to the best of our ability the addition of any negative emotions to our world and environment. Have I got that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Your newest book, sir, instructs us in the beginning that your book is not the usual scientific text, but rather an examination of science and spirituality. So let's begin with a definition or two. How is spirituality different than religion? And isn't science and spirituality, to most at least, an oxymoron? So why was it important for you as a scientist to write the book? Well, I'll tell you how science and religion are different to me, but of course, we know people use these words to mean all sorts of different things. So, Amen. But what I mean by this is this. When I talk about spirituality, I talk about experiences that real living people have about being part of a bigger universe, a higher level of reality, and so forth. When I talk about religion, I talk about what happens to spiritual experiences after several generations of committees have worked them over so they fit in with the social scheme. And unfortunately, they're not always the same. We need religion. We need social organization and whatnot. But sometimes the, the religions get so involved in the power structure of society and all that that they inhibit people actually experiencing the physical. You know, I would think, for instance, the best way to teach people to love one another is not to tell them they're commanded to do it or it's part of your religion, but to help them have an experience where they feel these deep connections with other people. So, as I said earlier, it's just natural and sensible to be kind and understanding to other people. So, those are those are big differences to me. You now, know, at the same... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then, now, how science comes into this is I think of science as a way of refining our knowledge. I've thought about this a lot, and I think, how do we know things? Well, one way is the way of authority, okay? You ask somebody who's supposed to know, and you're supposed to believe what they say. Mm -hmm. And that works a lot of time, but we know authorities can be real idiots and totally wrong and lie to us. Right. Another way is direct experience. But we all know people who've had a lot of experience in certain areas and they didn't learn much from it. And a third way is reasoning about it, you know. I'll, I'll just be logical, and that helps. But again, you can go off in ridiculous sorts of things. So science to me is a way of kind of combining different ways of, of knowing things to refine your knowledge. And I take religions, after you subtract that, that purely social part, as attempts to understand spiritual experiences, but they've tended to condense into fixed ideas instead of a signpost of go in this direction and see what you can learn. Science can help us have help people have more spiritual experiences, understand them better, apply them better, and so forth. You're, uh, you know, I love all of your books, but your newest book, The End of Materialism, um, I think brings this home in kind of a, I'd like to say noetic way, but perhaps it's just a feeling, a more emotive way. When you discuss the Western creed, and if I may, you know, I'm just going to read from your book a, a minute here and then ask you about it. Can I do that all right okay. with you? Right. But just I remind believe, people, 
Yeah. Just remind people, this is not what I believe. This is an exercise I give to people to bug the hell out of them so they can find out something <laughs> about what they what they actually believe. All right, that's a very good introduction. <laughs> but but it's it is very good at bugging people. It 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 is basically a distillation, if you will, of Western thinking within a scientific community, at least as we find it today, most everywhere we go. Fair yep. enough? Okay, so here we go. Western Creed. I believe in the material universe as the only and ultimate reality, a universe controlled by fixed physical laws and blind chance. I therefore affirm, I added the word therefore, that the universe has no creator, no objective purpose, and no objective meaning or destiny. I maintain that all ideas about God or gods, enlightened beings, prophets, and saviors, or other non-physical beings or forces are superstitious and delusions. Life and consciousness are totally identical to physical processes and arose from chance interactions of blind physical forces. Like the rest of life, my life and my consciousness have no objective purpose, meaning, or destiny. I therefore believe that all judgments, values, and moralities, whether my own or others, are subjective, arising solely from biological determinants, personal history, and chance. Free will is an illusion, therefore the most rational values I can personally live by must be based on the knowledge that for me, what pleases me is good, what pains me is bad. Those who please me or help me avoid pain are my friends. Those who pain me or keep me from my pleasure are my enemies. Rationality requires that friends and enemies be used in ways that maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain. This goes on. Now, my point of reading this is this is an exercise that if you read this, it's your test. If you read this slowly and thoughtfully, I don't care how intelligent you are, it's basically going to pause, and you're going to have a, I think you're going to have an epiphany. No, I don't believe that. And that is what's implicit in the existing paradigm. So my, so my question, sir. When when you question these things seriously as you do, and as many immediately as you do in this book, do you believe that 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 alone is sufficient to initiate a paradigm shift? Oh, I believe Today, pushing 
you know, the whole notion of superstition, religion. I, Michael Shermer was on the show, and uh, there was a time that he was, uh, you know, for all intent and purposes, an evangelist going door to door, seeking conversions. Uh, and then he tells a story how, of course, he became enlightened in the university. And he studied under B.F. Skinner, and you probably are familiar with the whole story. Yeah. But, uh, bottom line is, it it is his opinion. Uh, well, I'll voice the words of Freud: uh, religion, spirituality is a sugar-coated, neurotic crutch, and 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 our institutions should be teaching us that this is all a superstition and that there is no value to hanging on to these superstitious notions. Why do you think that's so popular in our educational system today? Well, by and large, it's not a conscious decision. Okay? It's not that there are these people who have a plot to indoctrinate young people in this. They've already been indoctrinated in it. They think that's the way it is. And that's why I wrote my End of Materialism book, actually, because so many people think that science has somehow proven that all spirituality is nonsense. Now, the reality is, yes, some spirituality, some religion is nonsense. It applies to all areas of life. You know, some doctors are fakes rather than real doctors. But it's not as if science has extensively tested all aspects of spirituality. It's like a decision was made for philosophical and social reasons uh, many, many years ago that this was all nonsense. So it's just been declared to be nonsense. But the message of my book is that when you actually apply real science to the area of the spiritual and parapsychological, you find that we humans sometimes show properties, behaviors, qualities that are like what we think the spiritual is. And so it's it's nonsense to just throw out spirituality wholesale like that. So, you know, the, the big conclusion is it's reasonable to be both scientific and spiritual in your approach to life. And I stress the both there and add the discrimination. Uh, one of the spiritual teachings I was exposed to years ago had a saying that I don't know whether, where it originally came from, but it said... Uh, the, let me make sure I get it right, because it's a nice quote if I can say it correctly, and otherwise I'll, I'll mess the thing up. I, I can't remember it exactly, but it basically says to believe in anything without thinking about it, without question. Now, I'm saying it all wrong. Now, I, I withdraw that completely, because I'm going to screw up what could otherwise be a very good quotation. But it says you've got to take in all of reality as part of your spiritual approach. To take certain parts of experience from reality, say this is religion and spirit, and this is true, and I won't pay any attention to the rest, or I'll condemn all the rest. That's the action of the fall, in the Christian sense of the fall. When you deny any parts of reality instead of really understanding it, you're just creating trouble, not really spiritually seeking. And that, again, is why I'm trying to build bridges between the best of science and the best of spirituality. You know, let's let's look at science and spirituality, then. Let's go to that aspect. And, and I know you, you downplay that some in, in your new book. It isn't, it isn't a reference text like your, some of your prior books, um, full of the details of studies. But, 
you know, your bioinfo states that your work was important in influencing government policymakers against the deployment of the MX missile system. Flesh that out for us. Yeah, I can't prove this, but I think it's true. Back in the 70s, I was uh, a consultant on the remote viewing research back at um, Stanford Research Institute in Menlo Park. That's that's where it all started before remote viewing took off and became sort of popular. And among the things we were asked had to do with practical uses of ESP. And the government at that time was thinking of building the MX missile system. You you sound old enough to remember that. I do. I do. Umpteen zillion dollars to start shuttling these intercontinental ballistic missiles around to hundreds of different silos all over the country, the theory being that the Russians didn't have enough of their own missiles to knock out all of ours on a first strike because they didn't know which shuttles or which silos actually had missiles in it. Therefore, they wouldn't shoot first. Interesting theory, kind of insane, but interesting theory. And we applied what we knew about remote viewing and also research I'd done at UC Davis on trying to teach people better telepathic abilities, to suppose you're going to use ESP to start looking at all these different silos and say, not this one, not this one, this one's got a missile in it, not this one, this one's got a missile in it. And we just showed that given the levels of ESP that came up in my research and in the remote viewing research, a first strike would be a great move on the Russians' part because they could knock out most of our missiles. I'm told that information got up to the highest levels of government, and it was one of the reasons they decided not to build the MX missile system, as well as the fact that it cost umpteen billion dollars and we'd still be paying for it. So that wasn't a a planned aspect of any of my research, but I think it may be one of the most useful things I've ever done to help in that. That's very interesting. You know, when we get back, I've got we've got a break coming up again here. But when we get back, I want to talk to you about uh, SRI, Ingo Swan, your new Ingo, uh, and uh, you know some of what he did and and he said, as well as Major Ed Dames. But as I say, we've got a hard break coming up. You've known you've known all the pioneers in all these areas, uh, and we'll be talking about all of that in the next hour as well. If you would like to know more about Professor Charles Tart and his book, The End of Materialism, or for that matter, any of his other works, be sure to check them out at Barnes & Noble or Amazon online. Just search his name, Professor, well, Charles T. Tart, and you'll get them all. Now we have a video for you during the break featuring our guests discussing evolving science. You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. 
Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InterTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor Charles Tart about his life, work, and most recent book, The End of Materialism. It's a great book. You're going to want to get a hold of this one and read it. That's whichever side of the argument you're on. It's a great one. Now, Professor, we just played your second musical choice, Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles. So please tell us, why is this one special to you, sir? <laughs> oh, my. This would get us off into a whole trip about altered states of consciousness and whatnot. Um, well, that sounds like a good conversation, not a tangential one. <laughs> well, it's been a major part of my lifelong research. You know, I, I can talk about being a parapsychologist, but that's one aspect of it. And really, I'm interested in the nature of the human mind, my own mind, and insofar as I'm a member of the human race, everybody's mind that way. Right. And psychedelic drugs came along in our culture and had people experiencing all sorts of drastically altered states of consciousness for better and for worse. And the Beatles were singing about that, and uh, I liked it. It was very poetic. It talked about the positive side of it. Unfortunately, there's a big negative side, too. And uh, they make good music. Okay, so... uh... Were you uh, a friend of Timothy Leary's? 
Uh, I knew him, but I wouldn't call myself a friend. I only saw him two or three times. Well, what I meant by friend, a follower in his footsteps? No, actually, I was involved in psychedelic research before he ever got involved, and we used to kid about, you know, these wild Harvard professors come along and ruining the scene with all their popular stuff. (laughs) Okay, cool. All right, sir, I promised that I was going to ask you more about SRI uh, before the break. The late Ingo Swan once told me that everyone has the ability to remote view. In his book, The Nostradamus Factor, he proposed methods for cultivating this and other forms of ESP or so-called psychic abilities. Now, you worked with him. Do you believe that everyone has his sort of ability? I mean, I know you believe that we can develop it, but go ahead, flesh that out for us, please. I believe everyone has the potential, you know, and I have the potential, I suppose, to be an opera singer, but I don't think anybody's ever going to pay to hear me sing. (laughs) Some of us are a lot more talented than other people, and Ingo was one of the stars way up there. All right, so we have the ability to develop it, but we're not likely to become, as you say, the opera singer in that area unless we're doing it spontaneously to begin with. And why do we want to develop it? Okay, I'm talking particularly about something like remote viewing now. You know, it's not really a particularly useful skill for the average person unless you just use it as an opening to get into serious spiritual development, okay? I mean, as a transpersonal psychologist particularly, I think we all need to develop our spiritual side. And the psychic side of that is just a kind of demonstration that there's something real there. But by and large, it's not something of much everyday value. On the other hand, if I ran the CIA, I'd support extensive remote viewing programs because it was quite practical as an adjunct form of intelligence gathering. Right. Don't you think um, excessive interest in parapsychology, developing psychic abilities, etc., actually leads you away from true spiritual development? Oh, it certainly can. You know, you can get hung up. Uh, I, I remember I was interested as a teenager in developing psychic abilities, and one night I saw on television a rerun of the first Ten Commandments movie, uh-huh. and I was very excited about that, and I realized at some point, yeah, I want power so I can spite my enemies. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I want to particularly develop that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's you can have all the wrong reasons for developing this sort of stuff. All right. Now, we also see uh, what conjoined, I suppose, to uh, the positive aspect of uh, what we can learn through remote viewing. We, we see a lot of negativity that comes from that. Now, and I'm not picking on anybody here, but Major Ed Dames has been on our show, and uh, the year he was on the show, he told us we would have this great solar event and it would fry the earth, but if you knew the pockets to be in, you would be saved, and if you were to reach out to him, uh, his organization, for a fee, could advise you as to where those safe pockets were, and of course there was no solar fry, but we're still, I mean... There are reasons that there that there may or may not have been that. My point is not in some way to uh, point at at dames. It's rather to say, aren't there some serious abuses uh, and misunderstandings uh, when we rely on 
this form of information. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I don't know Ed Dame, so I can't say anything personally about him. I do remember that prediction. But, you know, having been in this field for more than 50 years, if if I started adding up the psychic predictions of the end of the world, it's happened a couple of dozen times at least, and I'm so dense I haven't noticed it. <laughs> I still think I'm here. Uh, yeah, I think we could develop useful psychic warning systems for disasters like earthquakes or tornadoes or something like that. But as it is now, we, we don't get very reliable warnings, and of course people misuse this kind of thing to influence other people. And there's nothing new about that, you know. If I want to have influence over you and I don't have an army backing me up, if I can get you to believe that I'm a powerful magician, maybe you'll do what I say that way and uh, give me some more money. Now, I, I know I sound a little cynical there, and I'm usually an optimistic kind of person, but of course you point out a real problem there. Some people abuse psychic and spiritual stuff as one more way of conning people. Okay. All right. So if I understand you, just kind of uh, recap where remote viewing is concerned. As far as you're concerned, um, the evidence is this is a credible uh, means that other than a few unique people like Ingo Swan are capable of. I'd make that a little broader, okay? When it's done properly, and from what I hear about a lot of the expensive courses on remote viewing, it's not done properly. But when okay. it's done properly, it can provide useful information, and there are a few people who are extremely good at remote viewing. You know, In engineering terms, their signal-to-noise ratio is high, but even a lot of ordinary people can sometimes pick up something. But, you know, if I was told go out on the street and get the next 12 people and train them to be remote viewers, I don't know how optimistic I'd be about that coming out. Okay. When I did my own training of ESP ability for multiple choice type tasks, for instance, back at UC, I pre-selected people. I gave rough tests of classes of people, you know, and go, went through a couple of thousand people and took the ones who looked pretty good and then individually gave them more rigorous kinds of tests and then worked only with the ones who continued to show some psychic ability. That's the kind of training you need to do. But again, I don't think this is a problem. You know, if I want to form a, a choir to entertain people, I don't want to have to take just anybody who drops by. I'd like to give them a little singing test to pick the ones who sing well. You know, I like that, the way you define that, because... In the broader sense, when we look at, well, everybody has this ability, uh, the skeptics are quick to jump in there and grab, you know, a half a dozen people and say, here, let's, let's do some side testing. And there are no pre-qualifications. There is no pre-selection. So it's kind of analogous to what you say. You just grab a half a dozen people off the street and expect that you're going to have a symphony choir. Well, actually, it's worse than that, Eldon, because the uh, the skeptics, or the pseudo-skeptics, as I usually call them, because they're not really skeptical, don't do tests. They already know ahead of time that the stuff isn't real and doesn't work, so why should they waste their time actually doing anything? And that's but then, you know, there's a very rare few who have done some tests, but if you have a kind of weak phenomena, you can't demonstrate it with just a, a small number of people. You've got to have a lot of people train them, screen them, whatnot. Uh, that's something we've we've learned over the years. 
Okay, let's talk about OBEs then. Uh, it, you know, there's a, a collateral, uh, what should we say, um, um, well, OBEs and remote viewing are different, even though in a sense they claim to be capable of many similar things. I know you knew Bob Monroe, and he oh, really... Oh, yeah, he was a good friend. He really pioneered a lot of this work, at least as far as the public is concerned. And, you know, one of the, one of his original co, uh, um, you know, experiencers, I guess, was Tom Campbell, the nuclear physicist. And Tom has informed me that, um, the, the nature of the OBEs they had were such that they could be validated independently. Uh, what is your experience regarding OBEs and have you been able to validate the information obtained from these, uh, OBEs? Well, I, in, in case everybody isn't aware of it, OBEs is out of the body experiences. Yeah. And I'm very glad you pronounced it that way. Because one of the great burdens I bear in life is in one of my early experiments on out-of-the-body experiences, I abbreviated as OOBE for out-of-body experiences. <laughs> and then for the next two dozen years, people would come up after a lecture and say, I want to tell you about my OOBE. <laughs> I never thought that would happen. <laughs> That's cute. So, yeah, I had read about them from, oh, more than 50 years ago, and... Most of them, you could treat them as an important experience, but they were just an experience. You know, if somebody leaves their body and goes off and talks to somebody else in the clouds for 10 minutes and comes back, yeah, that's nice, but you can't tell anything more about it. But some OBEs, they go to someplace else on the Earth, and you can check did they correctly describe what happened. I was very lucky and that years ago we had a babysitter who started talking to me about her OBEs. Because ever since she was a kid, she had the experience of waking up in the middle of the night and finding herself floating near the ceiling. She could look down, see her body in bed. and Sometimes she'd go some places, but usually she just fell back asleep. And she asked me, was, it, was she really out of her body or was it just a special kind of dream? Because I was supposed to be an expert, I guess. Well, I told her I didn't know, but there was an experiment she could do as a start to find out for herself, and that was to take... 10 slips of paper, write the numbers 1 to 10 on them, turn them upside down, put them in a box, and after she went in bed, shuffle them up without looking and turn one over. And then if she happened to float near the ceiling that night, memorize the number and check it in the morning. I saw her a few weeks later, and she said she'd done it seven or eight times, and she was always right. Was there anything else interesting we could do? Well, there was. So I was able to what was probably the first time in the world to have an out-of-the-body experience studied in the laboratory. I was doing sleep research at the time and had a laboratory available to measure brain waves and other bodily changes. And she was able to spend several nights there before she moved across the country. And I would tell her, you know, if you have an out-of-the-body experience during the night, please try to have one. I want you to float up near the ceiling and look on a shelf up near the ceiling and read anything you see up there. And also look at the clock over on the wall and look at the time and memorize it, then wake up and tell me about it. You know, I wanted a good, precise miracle, not a, not a vague sort of one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so after she was hooked up in bed and couldn't get out of bed without the EEG showing a terrible spattering of ink all over the place, right. 
uh, I'd go off and use a random method to write a five-digit number on that piece of paper and lay it on the shelf so nobody could see it even walking around in the room, much less being held in bed with the wires. That sounds terrible. It's actually comfortable, you know, but she couldn't get up. Right, I understand. And several times she awoke and told me she had a very brief OBE. She couldn't quite control her movement, though, so she had no idea what the number was. And then one time she told me, yeah, and the number is 25132. Well, it turns out the number was 25132. The odds against guessing that are 100,000 to 1. That's pretty impressive. Very impressive. Now, what I concluded from that was that you could take this wild, far-out thing, the soul leaving the body, and you could start testing it under laboratory conditions. I also knew from my measurements of her brainwaves and stuff that she wasn't close to death. Right? You, you didn't have to get excited and call the crash cart in the hospital <laughs> or something like that. So I was very happy. I thought I'd shown the feasibility of testing this. And naturally, I was young and naive then. The world will run out and find people who can do this and do all sorts of tests which is not what happened, of course. The results were unacceptable. The main criticism I get on that, well, I get two main criticisms. One is, how can I claim to have proven that the mind can leave the body? Though I never said I proved it. I said you could study under lab conditions, and this is what happened. I'm a scientist, you know? Right. Uh, Maybe it means that, but it would take a lot more research. The other great criticism I get, which I really enjoy, is somebody will say, did you know what the number was? When I say, yeah, they say, well, maybe it was just telepathy. (laughs) Okay, just telepathy. Sorry, couldn't control for everything first time around. And no doubt the person that would say just telepathy is one of those pseudo-skeptics, as you call them, that would debunk all of this, including telepathy. Let me elaborate. I think being a skeptic is an honorable position, because to be being a skeptic means you're interested in something. You're not very satisfied with what explanations we have of it. You'd like to get closer to the truth on it. That's right. The but the pseudo-skeptics Greek. say they're looking for the truth, but actually they already know the truth, and they don't like what you're saying because it contradicts their truth. That's pseudo-skepticism, and that really confuses the issue. I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I'm not particularly satisfied with our explanations of anything. I'd like to know things better. But I'm not going to dismiss things just because they may not agree with what I think about them. I agree. The original skeptic, uh, the original Greek skepticism. Let's let's do this. Let's talk about NDEs for a minute. Because, yeah. you know, with NDEs, we very often hear of OBEs. and. And, you know, we have had people on the show that have uh, told us about OBEs where a patient um, has is clinically dead, had the out-of-body, but has uh, seen a coin uh, on uh, high up in uh, on resting on some uh, medical equipment. And mm-hmm. later they've found that coin. So there, there's been some anecdotal information that kind of is really interesting to me and I think to the audience, but Kevin Nelson is convinced, and, and I'm sure you know who Dr. Kevin Nelson Kentucky no, I don't. is. Well, Dr. Kevin Nelson uh, is convinced that um, the NDE is a rem intrusion. Um, in, in a refereed paper, he's basically argued uh, that 
what what all these NDEs are is just simply REM activity in a dying brain. Uh, and I and I know you're familiar with the dying various dying brain models. Yeah. There's uh, not much support for that kind of theory. But yeah. Anyway, what glad do you somebody's think, thinking about it. What do you think of the the possibility that that it an NDE is indeed a REM intrusion? Okay. First off, the NDEs often start with an out of the body experience, but they don't always. And they then get different from an out-of-the-body experience because in an out-of-the-body experience, your consciousness feels pretty much just like it does now, your ordinary consciousness. You just happen to be located someplace else than where your body is. Mm -hmm. But in near-death experiences, you also go into an altered state of consciousness. Your mind works in a very different kind of way. Now, as far as REM intrusions, uh, with my study with this woman who could have out-of-the-body experiences in the laboratory, I was measuring her EEG. She was having, she was not having a classic REM period. Okay? Mm-hmm. I had done a lot of dream research by that time, and I also took the EEG record and showed it to a pro- person who was probably the leading sleep researcher in the world, and we both agreed this is a funny-looking EEG. Whatever it is, it's not the same as just ordinary REM. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not saying much. That's just saying there's something to be learned. But that's with the OBE. How about the REM with the NDE? Uh, I don't think anybody's got any data on that, actually. Because, oh. you know, if some if somebody's dying, you're not trying to put the electrodes on to get a good quality EEG recording. You're trying to keep them from dying. And you may be administering tremendous shocks to start their heart, which would blow your EEG equipment through the wall, practically. True. So we don't really have data there. But uh, NDEs are not described as being like dreams, also. That's the difference. I mean, right now, are you dreaming? No. Right now. How do you know? How do you know you're not dreaming? Uh, you know, I, the reason I hesitated is I could have gone there, you know. I'm not sure it isn't a dream within a dream, you know. Bottom would line you, is, you, maybe it is all an illusion, Professor. Let's let's cut through the philosophy, Elton. Would you bet me 50 bucks that you're going to wake up at, in your bed at home within five minutes? I, I absolutely would bet that I am not going to wake up <laughs> in my bed in five minutes. Okay. okay. All right. When I ask somebody, are you dreaming right now, you can get philosophical about it, okay? But practically, your mind doesn't feel like a dreaming mind. That's not the way you experience dreams. Same thing with NDEs. The way the people's minds work is described as very different from the way they describe their dreams. So saying it's just a a, a REM dream without any evidence for it when it's it feels very different to the people experiencing it is not honoring the actual data, what the experience is. Nelson's paper, not defending uh, Kevin Nelson, he's been on our show, of course, is a peer-reviewed uh, paper, and he does offer a fair amount of evidence, but it's unfair of me to ask you about that if you're not familiar with his paper. Nevertheless, yeah. Well, we I... could get real technical, too, because I I know this general literature, and I'm not at all impressed with the attempts to explain NDEs away in conventional terms. They don't hold water. Good. I'm going to ask you a tough one here for you, perhaps, because you may know about this one, uh, and it may have political uh, ramifications, but here's the bottom line. There are lots of claims that come out of NDEs, 
and I believe that researchers are out there and and some good ones they give you some good accounts and some others exaggerate the nature of this. Are you familiar with NDE experiencers who come back with higher IQs, some above 200 and more? No. Okay, good. I'll just dispel right. that one there. That that is that is a claim that we had on this show uh um that I they challenged and I've I've not been able to obtain any factual support for it. But yeah. you're the guy be. to I ask. I've never heard of it. It could be you never did, but you know, I I what's this young lady in England who uh just took an IQ test, scored 168, beat uh, Hawking and uh, Einstein. So I think claims of 200 or more, you know, you, you better tell me what the instrument is. You're a psychologist, you know. Right, that. yeah. Da-da. Okay, well, we have a heartbreak on us. When we come back, we're going to have some more fun with uh, one of the most interesting people I have ever had the opportunity to visit with, and a man, a scholar, who I absolutely encourage you to read everything you can get your hands on that was written by this man. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Gotcha. The explosive new book by New York Times bestselling author Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to win the hearts and minds of the public. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. Your very decision process is being managed and manipulated, and the quest for discovering your real self becomes exponentially more difficult, if not impossible, as a result. Pre-order now. EldonTaylor.com slash gotcha. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show.
Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor Charles Tart about his life, work, and books, including his newest one, The End of Materialism. In this half hour, we'll take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or adventure comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor, you talk about a stark contrast, your first piece of music versus this piece of music. We just played the Beatles. Tomorrow never knows. Why this one, sir? Well, I like the injunction, the command, the suggestion they give in the first line of turn off your mind. I remember years and years ago I got interested in meditation and I was terrible at it. I eventually gave up even trying to meditate because every meditation system I came across seemed to start with first stop thinking and calm your mind and then, and I just couldn't get to the and then part, <laughs> turn off my mind. Oh, that's an interesting thought. I could study ways to turn off my mind and, ooh, what a, what a three-ring circus the mind is. Uh, I now regard it as marvelous that sometime I can have a quiet mind for a few seconds at a time. So you did learn to turn off your mind. Yeah, I met a meditation teacher once who uh, really impressed me, a man named Shinzen Young. I was at a scientific conference, actually, and he was giving a talk on meditation, although I'd given it up by then. And listening to him, I noticed the uh, hairs on the back of my neck standing up. And I thought, oh, that's weird. But I realized something in me said, this guy is actually speaking from personal experience and knows what he's talking about instead of just quoting scriptures or teaching lines that have been polished. And uh, he got me meditating. Very bright guy. What was He'd the be a trick? good guest on your show. That sounds like it, but what was the trick? Or was there a trick? I mean, we, we all like to, you know, the, the worst thing, the best that I've heard, I guess, and, and I'll just share this, is uh, the idea of removing a thorn with a thorn, you know. Um, as those thoughts start to run by like a puppy dog running down the street following whatever set of footsteps is going, you know, what's worked for me is just simply, okay, what's the next thought you're going to give me? And after that, what will you give me? And pretty quick, I can slow mm -hmm. it down. But getting getting that blank space, everyone I've talked to, um, I think when they reach right down, um, they pretty well confess that, just shutting it out, that's not been something they've been able to do by volition. It's something that may happen, but not something they're able to trigger. You're mm -hmm. able to do that. How did you manage that? Well, no, I don't shut it down that way. And in fact, trying to forcefully shut my mind down just makes it more active. Okay. But one thing I've done is give up the idea that I could ever have a completely blank mind. That, re that relaxes it a lot to begin with. <laughs> Second, that, okay, I'm a failure at having a blank mind, but let me gently pay attention to what goes by. That's interesting. Oh, and there's that. That's interesting. And whatnot. And I do a number of kinds of meditation that way, on the, what the Buddhists would call the pasada, observing the action of the mind, rather than trying to force it into some particular pattern. And I like it, you know. Nobody will ever remember me as a great meditator, but uh, I make it a part of my day. 
I think we should all make it a part of our days, and it's just a part of mindfulness training nowadays. It's, it's kind of a reset and from the go, 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 go attitude our mind gets into. Isn't that the truth? Let me ask you this. You, you've done a lot of research on hypnosis. You've studied hypnosis, altered states of consciousness, and, of course, meditation. The similarity between meditation and self-hypnosis, uh, when we objectify it, is brainwave activity. In your view... And I've I've said this before, but in your view, do you feel that there is a subjective difference between the quality of the state brought about in self-hypnosis versus that brought about in a meditation practice? Can I give you a firm maybe? <laughs> Qualified by an it depends? <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, the problem that I'm sure you're aware of is that when people talk about hypnosis or self-hypnosis, they may mean right, quite different things, but they all use the same word. And the same thing with meditation. If somebody says, I meditate, I think the best I can conclude is that's nice, but that gives me no idea at all of what they actually do, much less what actually happens from it. So there are some aspects, some ways of doing something called hypnosis that I'm sure look a lot like what some people who call it meditation do. And there's a lot of differences also. Okay, I, For instance, we tended in the West to dismiss meditation for a long time, saying, oh, it's just some kind of self-hypnosis, as if we understood self-hypnosis, mm, which right. we still don't really understand it. But there are big differences. So, you know, to exaggerate them for clarity, for instance, in hypnosis, if I was going to hypnotize you, I'd say, you can relax. You don't have to judge anything or control anything or do anything. I'll take care of things. You just trust me and I'll take you on a trip. But if I was going to teach you meditation, I'd say, I'm going to teach you some methods that you need to apply to your mind. And I don't do the work. You do the work. whole big difference there as to where the, the control is sort of coming from. Um, you know, whole different sets of expectations as to what might happen. One of the things that's always interested me is the kind of subtle expectations that go behind things, uh, quite aside from the formal technique. So if I say to somebody in this culture, I'm going to hypnotize you, a whole different set of expectations come up and start shaping their mind compared to, I'll teach you something about meditation. So, yeah, sometimes maybe, depending on the person. Yeah, I, I like that answer. I, I've always thought it was, it's it's about expectation and direction, you know, uh, and they define yeah. themselves separately. Let's, let's talk a minute one of, about One of the best uses of meditation, actually, can be to start seeing what your expectations are, because mm -hmm. we have a lot of them that are shaping our mind and experience all the time. We don't know about them. Some of them, if we knew about them, we'd want to change. Yeah, I encourage people, and tell me if you agree with this or not, I encourage people initially to just tend to what their thoughts are. Just, just you know, yeah. listen to the thoughts that are coming in and what, what kind Good. of thoughts are you having. And if those thoughts are, are supporting thoughts, and if they're not supporting thoughts, well, don't condemn them, don't judge them. But instead, kind of follow them. Where, where did mm -hmm. they come from? When when were they first initiated? And see if you can't dissolve it in the process of un understanding what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I like that. Let's talk about psi phenomena for a minute, sir. Um, you know, clairvoyance, mediumship, precognition, psychokinesis. 
um, even psychic healing. Is, is, is there credible evidence in your view that suggests these are more than isolated anomalies, more than anecdotal reports? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Flesh that in out the, for us. In my uh, End of Materialism book, I've divided my look at things into two big areas. The things I called the five solid things that there's so many experiments supporting you can't doubt that they exist. And that's telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, psychic healing, and psychokinesis. And then I added the many maybes. Okay, these are psychic phenomena, which there's certainly enough evidence that they should be taken very seriously as maybe real and really investigated, but experts could disagree as to how solid the evidence is for them actually existing. So, you know, for instance, survival after death, I think the evidence is pretty damn good. But I wouldn't say it's proven beyond any reasonable doubt the way telepathy is or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or reincarnation or something like that. Some very good evidence uh, that I try to look at objectively, but I'm biased, actually. You know, I like to learn things in one lifetime isn't enough. I've got to come back and take this course over again. Amen. But that's just my (laughs) intentions, not the reality. You know, speaking of reincarnation, we had Jim Tucker on the show, and, and you write oh, yeah, about good it. man. Yeah, you you write about some of his work. But when I was reading your your reincarnation or, or that, uh, well, there's a chapter, I guess, on reincarnation. Actually, if mm-hmm. I th- isn't there a chapter on reincarnation or is it yeah. just a subject? Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. You you discuss um, Virginia Ty, the Bridie Murphy story. Oh yeah. My understanding of that is. It had been thoroughly discredited that Bridie Murphy, for all intent and purposes, uh, you know, this was an identity that was taken on uh, because of a neighbor lady and da-da-da-da-da. You have a whole different way of looking at it. Share that with our audience because we've discussed yeah. it on the show before. Uh, through a summer job I had once, I met Maury Bernstein, the guy who wrote the book The Search for Bridie Murphy. The hypnotist, the actual hypnotist, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Right. He was really a businessman, but, you know, he did hypnosis as his hobby and whatnot. Right. And he originally was, when he was looking for a publisher for that book, The one of the Chicago papers, I forget which one, wanted to buy it and serialize it. And he didn't like the way they were going to treat it. So he said, no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. Well, then it turned out later, the woman who said, she lived across the street from Virginia Tye and told her stories about old Ireland and all that, was the mother of the publisher of that Chicago paper who had told Bernstein, I'm going to get you. And that woman never made herself available to be interviewed by any independent investigator. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, when I read that, I I immediately had to throw everything into question because I have dismissed the Bridie Murphy case based on all of the you know papers that have been written by so many different people that just this is the inappropriate use of the word but they attempted they debunked the story in my mind they just completely debunked it yeah. but when i read what what you had to say about this it was like whoa hold it that means that all of this evidence supposedly marshaled to show that this case was false to fact was itself manufactured. That's right. Yeah. It it got me too particularly because I was very knowledgeable about hypnosis at that point 
And a book came out shortly after the Bridie Murphy book became a bestseller called uh, something like The Scientific Report on the Bridie Murphy. Yeah. And it was a, an anthology written by these experts in hypnosis who all debunked it. But I got very confused when I read it because I knew these people were the experts. I'd read their books and journal articles and all that. You know, these were the scientific gods of hypnosis that right. they were. And the things they said about the book, I said, did they actually read the book? Were there two books called The Search for Bridie Murphy by somebody named Maury Bernstein? I was blown away. You know, it, was, it was one of those things like uh, Roosevelt, you know, learning that the world is not that simple. <laughs> These may be in the scientific experts that they were prejudiced as could be, and they went nuts trying to debunk it. Foregone conclusions, jumping in on, uh, yeah. Yeah, good lesson. It's a good idea to read a book before you talk about what poor quality it is. You know, I I read both books, and I I did not detect the differences. I guess what I did was assume that the evidence being marshaled against the Bridie Murphy case by the experts, as you point out, uh, for all intent and purposes, uh, most of their case was built upon what we now, what you suggest, would be that given to them by the publisher of the Chicago paper yeah. uh, that was just manufactured. And without, having that, without having that element or ingredient, uh, I I came down in favor of the of the debunkers, you know this, or manufactured by their own prejudices. Yeah. One of the most common things, for instance, they would say Bernstein claimed so and so, and I think I don't remember him saying that. So I went back and read the search for Bridie Murphy a second time, trying to see did Bernstein say that? No, he didn't say these things that they claimed he was wrong about. You know, in the art, the bad thing about well. Perhaps that's a wrong word, but they don't necessarily, as as I recall, and this is from my memory now, say that he said it in the book. They say he made and, and he made many public statements, and there was a lot of press, and you know there were newspaper. This the Chicago newspaper did indeed run a story on the Bridie Murphy case. So maybe they didn't run the serialized book they wanted, but there was a lot of press, a lot of articles out there. So I just kind of took that, that, well, maybe he said this somewhere else. Well, you and, know, and I wasn't as suspicious you? as you either. I mean, I just, hey, they got me. I had read it carefully because I thought this is a pretty good case for reincarnation. And this is the conclusion I came to before I actually met Bernstein. You know, but... Just so many. He, Bernstein said, no, he didn't say that anyway. It, it's a human thing. You know, when you're opposed to something and you want it to go away, you tend to look at things that support your own view and not the contrary things. Right. But these people are supposed to be scientists. You know, they have a moral obligation to look at the whole thing to both sides of an argument, not just the side they like. Oh, well. People. Yeah. You, and love you know, them I can't stand them. I, I think the other can be true because I want to believe in reincarnation, but I don't allow myself to accept something just because I want to. So I probably yeah. double attack it uh, so that I feel that I'm on safer ground. I don't know. You know, God's never Clifton Fadiman once said, and God plagued man with the ability to think. 
Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's do this. Um, your colleagues very often uh, become uncomfortable when you talk to them about fear with regard to psychic ability. What's going on there? Well, you know, if I could learn to control a one-ounce force of psychokinesis, okay, if I could just mm-hmm. focus one ounce of pressure somewhere with my mind just by thinking about it, I could become the world's most successful murderer because I could simply hold down the mitral valve on your heart for a minute and that would cause enough brain damage that you'd die from it and there's nothing happening externally. Who's going to finger me? Now, I hope nothing like that can happen, but, you know, in human history, Sounds like it's Denmark. not very long since we burned people at the stake if we thought they could do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of fear... And if we refuse to pre- admit that it's there, then, of course, it has big effects on us. If we examine it consciously, you know, well, sure, you know. You're a martial artist. Are you familiar with Din Mok? No. Okay. Um, I'll leave that I think quick. calling me a martial artist may be too strong, but anyway. <laughs> okay, well, in, mar- in martial arts, there is something known as Din Mok, and uh, allegedly, this is a touch that is so loaded with energy that it does basically what you just described. It just it it kills you instantly. Mm-hmm. I, I, okay, uh, we are really short time. I've got a load more questions. We're going to have to bring you back to the show, but I want everybody right. to know uh, you have a website, the Archives of Scientists Transcended Experiences. Uh, and it allows scientists to report these experiences anonymously. Two questions, sir. Why anonymously? Second question. What kind of reports do you get? Anonymously because most scientists have learned that if they talk about their own psychic or spiritual experiences in the prevailingly materialistic scientific community, they're going to be punished for it. People are going to think, oh, he's an old guy, he's getting senile, or he must be a little bit crazy to begin with, or it's going to ruin our reputation to have somebody like that. Uh, the prejudice against looking at this stuff is very strong. So I let people do it anonymously. But interestingly, only about half of them chose to be anonymous. The others came out with their real names. But the ones who used their real names were almost all retired, so they didn't have to worry about what their colleagues could do. That's a sad statement. That is a really sad statement. That uh, that website is, uh, what is it, issc-taste.org yeah. forward slash index, yeah, dot yeah. shtml. For all of you, you out could... there interested... Is there a one place uh, that our listening audience can go, uh, Professor Tart, and and learn about your lectures, where you're going to be speaking again, learn more about your work, uh, including explore maybe what these scientists have said anonymously Mm -hmm. about their own spiritual experiences? Well, the easiest way is to just put Charles Tart into Google. Uh, although I have to tell you, the first time I did that many years ago, wondering, gee, is anybody paying attention to me? I was blown away when it came back with 8 million hits. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh. But then I realized I hadn't put Charles Tart in quotes, 
And almost all of those hits were for this fellow, Prince Charles, who seems to be better known than me. <laughs> I love your <laughs> but sense that, of that will lead you to a lot of my websites, yeah. All right. So that's it. Use Google Charles Tart. All right. I have stolen all your time. I've been selfish with it. I'm going to go immediately to the chat room. We favor them. The phone lines are busy, but I'm going to take at least one question out of the chat room uh, before we conclude the show. Richard said, what weight does Dr. Tart give to evolutionary psychology and understanding and sorting out human drives? Uh, I give weight to practically every explanation of anything because I think, you know, it's a big, complicated world and there are lots of ways to think about it. But whenever any explanation says this is the only way to think about things, I get skeptical. Okay? Um, evolution makes a lot of sense about certain things about our physical bodies. What about our minds? That's, that's part of the reality of things, too. So, you know, take it where it's useful. Don't get carried away with it. I like that. All right, sir. I am going to sneak. Well, I don't. I just don't have time. We've got 30 seconds left. I'm going to give that to you to leave whatever final message you would like to leave with our listening audience. It's been a lot of fun. I'm very impressed with your show and the material you're bringing to people and the advice you're giving them, Eldon. Keep it up. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to have you say that. I, again, um, well, I've already told everybody, you know, you walk on water almost as far as I'm concerned, sir. I want to thank all of you out there and you, particularly Professor Tart, for your willingness to share your work with us and all that you've contributed to the field of psychology and parapsychology and the work of so many of us that, well, we get our foundation by referring to you quite often. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.